I want us to uh, imagine that Ezekiel was about to get up to speak again. And uh, as the Israelites gathered by the Kabar River in Babylon to hear Ezekiel again, they may have started to chat among themselves about what Ezekiel had said on previous occasions. They've now seen that Ezekiel's prophecies are God's word because what Ezekiel had said had come true about their beloved city, Jerusalem. The Babylonians attacked that beloved city of theirs. They destroyed both the city and the temple. And what's more, it happened just like Ezekiel had predicted that it would happen. Those sceptics that had scoffed at what Ezekiel had previously said now had to acknowledge that what Ezekiel had to say was true. And it was such a hopeless position to be in because Ezekiel had told them that it was God who brought the Babylonians against them. Now, previously, the, uh, the Israelites had been concerned about more local enemies Ezekiel had spoken against these local enemies in chapters 25 to 32 and we heard Wayne speak about these a a few weeks ago. Ezekiel had prophesied then against Tyre, Ammon, Moab, Edom, the Philistines and Egypt. But such schoolyard squabbles between Israel and these local neighbours became trivial when faced with the gigantic might of Babylon. As we heard last week, though, words of, the words of Ezekiel became words of hope. He had predictions of God looking after them again as one nation under some king, like their hero David. Ezekiel had prophesied of God breathing life into them breathing life into their army so that once again they would be God's people in his land, the land that God had promised to them. But the problem was that the sound of the marching Babylonian troops kept on ringing in their ears. Pictures would replay in their minds of... Israelites being butchered in the streets of of Jerusalem as houses burned and walls crumbled. If what Ezekiel is saying is really true, if God does keep his promise and through some miracle the people are able to return back to, to the land, then how can they tell that it isn't going to happen again? After all, as people say, history repeats itself. And they have heard of some nations that have been able to oppose the Babylonians, at least to some extent. What if after this prophecy of Ezekiel comes true and they're back in the land and then some of these more powerful nations, maybe a nation such as Persia or the mighty nations of Magog, Meshach or Tabal come against the Israelites just like the Babylonians did, What hope will there be then? Such could well be the topic of of conversation as Ezekiel gets up to speak again. And what he says starts in 
Ezekiel chapter 38. We'll, I'll, I'll just um, mention some of the points from it though. In Ezekiel chapter 38 verses 1 to 16, he tells the story of a future battle. In verse 2, Gog, the prince of Magog, Meshach and Tubal, together with his army, are brought by God against the people who are described in verse 11 as peacefully living in unwalled cities. This invading army has evil intentions and ready to exterminate God's people. Such is the scene of calamity told by Ezekiel. Already their world had been expanded to look not just at their local neighbours but to look at much bigger nations such as Babylon. Now, while they may have been frightened of a more powerful nation then being brought against them, Ezekiel says that God will bring a coalition of mighty nations against them. This coalition of mighty nations includes, in verse 2, Gog, Magog, Meshach and Tubal, shown right up there in, in, in the north on the map. It also includes, in verses 5 and 6, Persia in the east, Cush in the south, Put over there near Egypt, and Beth Togamah up in the north again. Then in verse 13, we have Sheba and Dedan in the south and Tarshish in the west mentioned. To emphasise the extent of this coalition, Ezekiel tells us in verses 6, 9 and 15, three times, that it's many nations. And we'll soon see, as we, we look into the, the rest of it, that it isn't just representatives of the entire um, known world at the time, it's a vast majority. And in verses 11 to 13 of chapter 38, we're told that the vast majority will be intent on evil against God's people. The picture is given in verse 9 of a storm cloud of these people in invading. And it's like what was portrayed in the Lord of the Rings movie, The Return of the King, when vast armies came against the good guys outside the gates of Mordor. If you've seen the, the movie or, or read the book, you'll know this scene. The vast army spills out like a torrent from a burst dam, thousands if not millions against a handful. In the movie... The bad guys are fighting against a small minority seen there in the, in, in the middle. The difference, though, is that these guys are an army. But in Ezekiel's vision, in, in, in Ezekiel's image here, God's people are totally defenceless. They have nothing. And it seems like the total destruction of God's people is certain. So the Israelites in Babylon would be thinking, if this is the future, if this is what's going to happen, why bother going back to the land at all? 
the Israelites may say, why not just stay in Babylon and forget all this following God stuff? So those people in Babylon would be tempted to let any faith in God just slip away. But the story doesn't end there. The story continues and we find that God brings about the destruction of those who oppose him. The last part of chapter 38 describes that total destruction, not of God's people though, like we would have expected, but instead the total destruction of God's enemies. It tells us of God using earthquakes, fire, civil strife, storms, in a cataclysmic event that wipes out all of God's enemies. Let's take up the remainder of Ezekiel's words uh, from verse 23 of chapter 38. I think Bruce was going to read it for us, is it? Uh, So it's Ezekiel chapter 38 from verse 23 to chapter 39 verse 22. Find my place too. Yep. Okay. And so I will show my greatness and my holiness, and I will make myself known in the sight of many nations, then they will know that I am the Lord. Son of man, prophesy against Gog and say, This is what the sovereign Lord says I am against you, O Gog, chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. I will turn you around and drag you along. I will bring you from the far north and send you against the mountains of Israel. Then I will strike your bow from your left hand and make your arrows drop from your right hand. On the mountains of Israel you will fall, you and all your troops and the nations with you. I will give you as food to all kinds of carrion birds and to the wild animals. You will fall in the open field, for I have spoken, declares the Sovereign Lord. I will send fire on Magog, and on those who live in safety in the coastlands, and they will know that I am the Lord. I will make known my holy name among my people Israel. I will no longer let my holy name be profaned, and the nations will know that I, the Lord, am the Holy One in Israel. It is coming. It will surely take place, declares the Sovereign Lord. This is the day I have spoken of. Then those who live in the towns of Israel will go out and use the weapons for fuel and burn them up the small and the large shields, the bows and arrows, the war clubs and spears. For seven years they will use them for fuel. They will not need to gather wood from the fields or cut it from the forest because they will use the weapons for fuel. And they will plunder those who plundered them and loot those who looted them, declares the Sovereign Lord. On that day I will give Gog a burial place in Israel, in the valley of those who travel east towards the sea. It will block the way of travellers because Gog and all his hordes will be buried there. So it will be called the Valley of Haman Gog. For seven months the house of Israel will be burying them in order to cleanse the land. All the people of the land will bury them. And the day I am glorified will be a a memorable day for them, declares the Sovereign Lord. 
Men will be regularly employed to cleanse the land. Some will go throughout the land, and in addition to them, others will bury those that remain on the ground. At the end of the seven months, they will begin their search. As they go through the land and one of them sees a human bone, he will set up a marker beside it until the grave diggers who have buried it in the valley of Haman Gog. Also a town called Hamanah will be there, and so they will cleanse the land. Son of man, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Call out to every kind of bird and all the wild animals. Assemble and come together from all around to the sacrifice I am preparing for you, the great sacrifice on the mountains of Israel. There you will eat flesh and drink blood. You will eat the flesh of mighty men and drink the blood of the princes of the earth as if they were rams and lambs, goats and bulls, all of them fattened animals from Bashan. At the sacrifice I am preparing for you, you will eat fat till you are glutted and drink blood till you are drunk. At my table you will eat your fill of horses and riders, mighty men and soldiers of every kind, declares the Sovereign Lord. I will display my glory among the nations, and all the nations will see the punishment I inflict and the hand I lay upon them. From that day forward the house of Israel will know that I am the Lord their God, and the nations will know that the people of Israel went into exile for their sin because they were unfaithful to me. So I hid my face from them and handed them over to their enemies, and they all fell by the sword. Thanks, Bruce. I wanted you to hear such graphic images in the context that the Israelites would have heard it. This is the total destruction of all their enemies. I think you may have picked up, as it was was being read then, the incredible lengths that are being used to describe uh, that God's people here are not just a little bit outnumbered. The term used consistently is vast hordes against God's people. All the details that are in that that passage in the story, the leftover weapons being used as fuel for seven years, the graves blocking travel, the naming of places after the hordes of Gog, and wild animals being able to uh, have their fill on the carcasses. The intention of all this is to point to the incredible number of those opposing God's people and being judged by God. Their vast strength and might is nothing against the God who rules everything. God brings his enemies to their end because they have opposed him. A little bit like trying to to take a run and jump through a brick wall. You can't oppose God and win. Yet this is what most of the world is doing. The story that we're looking at here in Ezekiel 38 and, and 39 looks at the end result of those who try to take such a run and jump against God. The story is repeated in the New Testament in Revelation chapter 20 from verse 8 onwards to say the same sort of thing, specifically listing this incident together with the final judgment day. 
It talks about the nations from the four corners of the earth being gathered with Gog and Magog for battle. I'll, I'll read it. It says, In number, they are like the sands on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulphur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. And then the book of Revelation goes on and talks about God judging the nations. So those who oppose God will be judged because God rules. Now, throughout the book of Ezekiel, we've been given little pointers that have said things like, then you will know, and then it's told us something about a lesson that we need to learn from looking at God's work, at that particular part of what Ezekiel has been saying, what's been taught. And there's a lesson that God has for people from this last great battle that he has described here. A lesson that was for those living in Babylon, and it's also a lesson for us here in Dubbo. And we read the lesson in chapter 38, verse 23. And so I will show my greatness and my holiness. I will make myself known in the sight of many nations. Then they will know that I am the Lord. So the lesson that all groups learn is who God is. And this is the inevitable end point that we will all arrive at. Everyone will know that he is in charge, whether we like it or not. In Philippians chapter 2, we're told that as a consequence of Jesus being raised from the dead, that God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You will know that Jesus is Lord. Either you'll know it and be glad because... He's the one that you worship and adore or you'll know it and tremble. You see, some will bow before Jesus as the ultimate boss and king and knowing that he has called them to be, to be his and that they worship him as their ultimate boss and king. They'll be glad. On the other hand, there are others perhaps even some that are here today, who on that day will know that Jesus is Lord, but they'll be trembling. Because such people haven't lived, have, have, haven't lived a life of Jesus as being Lord. Instead, they've lived a life rebelling against the one who really is shown to be in charge. Oh, you may not have been thinking that it's open, active rebellion against God. Instead, it's 
that's just what everyone's doing. I'm just following the crowd. A little bit like the troops from Gog and Magog. Such then will be grouped with those who tremble when Jesus is shown to be ruler because like Prince Gog of Magog, it will be your destruction. I hope this doesn't happen. I hope that instead that anyone here who is just following the crowd rather than following Jesus will turn and so on that day they too will be glad to bow before Jesus, the ruler of all. For the Israelites in Babylon, they may have been discouraged and tempted to give up their stand for God because of all of the things that had been happening and the opposition from the vast nations that had been put up before them in in Ezekiel's vision. For us in Dubbo too, we may be discouraged and tempted to give up our stand for Jesus as opposition mounts and pressures come before us. Ezekiel's message for those in Babylon and for us is to look toward the day when at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. We may feel like a minority and we see the vast majority of the world around us and each of them assuming that democratic principle that the majority is right. And so we may be tempted to reduce our stand or be silent when we should speak or simply to be tempted to let our faith slip. I know I've felt it. When DPC were making a stand against the nearby development application, at least one section of the local media seemed to be portraying us in DPC as a small minority opposing a development that was supposed to somehow help Dubbo. Sometimes at that time I might have felt uncomfortable going to work thinking I'll be identified as part of that small minority getting in the way of so-called progress. Well, as it turns out, the the conversations on the matter were actually quite quite positive. But even even if the conversations had become antagonistic, the reality is that any majority that exists who want to corrupt our society towards sin will be seen on that last day to be bowing before Jesus, the ruler. They will have been seen to have been taking a run and jump against God. And for us, therefore, it's foolish for us to think that we're on any sort of losing side. No. Unlike our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world, the opposition that we face often ends up being in the realm of feelings rather than actual physical persecutions. My son, James, isn't here today, um, but I'll I'll use a stand that he's taken as as another example. He's in the local WRSL chess club and he also goes to MOB, the youth group. Uh, Once a month, on a Sunday afternoon, 
the chess club has a tournament. And if James goes to the chess tournaments on a Sunday afternoon, then his ratings will go up and he'll have increased opportunities to get um, trophies and things like that. But if he went to the tournaments, he'd miss out on Sunday afternoon mob. James knows that Sunday afternoon mob is a time for getting serious about looking into the Bible. So he's hardly ever been to a Sunday afternoon chess tournament. It was his choice. At times I've heard people in the chess club say to him, Hey James, how come your ratings are so low? In the last day, the ratings and the trophies, the games, of course, they'll all be nothing before Jesus, the ruler of all. On a Sunday morning, one of us goes out to pick up the Sunday paper from the, from the front yard. A neighbour may be walking past. Oh, he's going for, for a walk. And we strike up a bit of a, a, bit of a con- conversation. After his walk, he's planning on taking the kids to the zoo or maybe to some sporting fixture. Other neighbours have already left to go fishing. I ponder that I don't even have time to read the Sunday papers and I probably won't have time to do all of those other sorts of activities that he's talking about because we're coming here to church. As we drive here, we see the activity of those people in their gardens and heading off to their sporting fixtures and things. We're clearly in a minority. Should we conform? No. All those other activities, they may be good and they may be popular, but uh, Jesus directs us towards things of eternal significance. So we look forward to that last great day and we persevere. I read this week of mounting opposition against teaching scripture in schools. Part of the argument sounds quite reasonable on democratic grounds. Will the vast majority around us discourage us from teaching those young lives the truths of the, of the gospel? If we looked at the mere weight of numbers, then it might. But if we look at the eternal perspective, that Jesus will be the ruler of all, including those young lives in the, in the classroom, then we can confidently go on sharing the truths from the Bible with those young lives because Jesus rules all and all will know it. As young Christians uh, grow up and they go through youth group and then on, they become aware of what the Bible teaches about sex being only for within marriage. They also learn of the dangers of marrying a non-Christian. As years go by though, Some of their friends start living together and others get married. And the temptation to weaken this stand becomes greater and greater. The majority even have a song in their arsenal 
that used to be around when I was that age. All my friends are getting married. Is it worth it? Ezekiel says, yes. Look to the day when all will stand before Jesus and acknowledge him, that he's in charge of all, including being in charge of our relationships and our sex lives and our marriages. There are many cases, of course, where we'll be under attack in our thinking. Oftentimes we'll be looking at the majority around us and be tempted to be discouraged. But instead of looking at those around us with their preoccupations with career, investments, houses, property, holidays, we can instead take our eyes from those things that are good, but of course those things that are good will also be ashes in that day when the king of the universe will be seen to be such. We will look at that day that will be be seen when every knee will bow and proclaim that Jesus is Lord. While we were in Africa, uh, on one mission compound we visited, we came across this graveyard It included the graves of children of missionaries. Those missionaries would have had friends back home in their home countries who were seeing their children grow up, go through school, play sport. They would have seen their children just having fun together. Well, these missionaries were in Africa telling people about Jesus and burying their children. The missionaries, I no doubt, would have questioned, was it worth it? Would it have been worth it to have gone against the majority of just going through life? Should they have stayed back home? No, says Ezekiel, no. There is a final day, a greater battle. And we can look towards that final day and follow the king of the universe. We persevere while living in a world where the majority has yet to learn that Jesus rules. And we persevere by looking to that day when at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 